Well, I feel at home here in more ways than one. Uh, I was so excited about preaching, I thought I was on after the offertory. Uh, so I blend right in with that crowd that can, uh, can attest that I'm far from perfection. Um, I remember uh, in Troy, we, um, uh, my son was a teenager, 13 or 14, and we'd get in the car to go home. And he would say, Dad, do you, know what you, do you want to know what you said today? I said, no, I don't want to hear it. Because I probably got some word mixed up. And uh, oftentimes, he and his mother sitting on the second row uh, would get tickled at me and my imperfection. I was preaching, and I was preaching on Goliath. And I wanted to, to say... Uh, and comment uh, on the weaver's beam, but I called it a beaver's wing. <laughs> and uh, I've watched Pastor, Chris, or Pastor Brent and Pastor Chris laugh in tears uh, with some of my uh, jargon. Uh, in all seriousness, I sat in your service this morning and heard your pastor preach. And I must say that I am so thankful for him. Dolly and I pray for a a list of young preachers every morning in our devotions. And Pastor Brenton Kelly's on that list. And so we remember to pray for them daily because we know what it's like um, to be pastoring. We know what it's like to love and lead a flock and to be an under-shepherd. Uh, we, we spent those, those years doing that and there's no greater joy than to, to see your children and hear your children walk in truth and uh, to, today was a delight in my heart and uh, I am so, I'm so grateful you got him. He was going somewhere. The Lord had his hand on him and still does and, and uh, God brought him here and I know you're thankful uh, for that and every time I come and preach my heart uh, is truly, truly blessed. All right, take your Bibles, if you would, and find 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Next to the last chapter of that book, 1 Corinthians is found just in front of 2 Corinthians. All right? Sometimes uh, we want to get there quickly. And there's, there's one verse that I want to preach from tonight. Uh, and I, I want to focus uh, the context of this verse on one statement in here. And look at it with me if you would. This is the last verse of the 15th chapter. We know it as the resurrection chapter. Uh, we know Paul is writing this on his, um, visited this church and started this church on his second missionary journey. He's writing this from uh, Ephesus. He had... He had heard of their relapse. They had, uh, some of them have, had shifted back to their old lifestyles. He was greatly concerned about the carnality in the church. Every chapter is not a chapter of correction, but the majority of them are corrections in 1 Corinthians. But there are great chapters uh, like ch- uh, chapter 11 on worship. It's a great chapter. Chapter 13, we would know that to be the, the chapter on charity or the love chapter of the Bible. Uh, 
Uh, and so in chapter 16, uh, he... Would, if we would look at it quickly, it's the preaching of the resurrection in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. And then there's the person of the resurrection. That's Christ. That's in the latter part of verse 3 and 4. Then there are the people who Jesus appeared to after the resurrection in verses 5 and 8. And then there's Paul's protection or his defense of the Resurrection, And that's a healthy section, 12 through 34. And then there's the great promise of the bodily resurrection. We, we believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we believe that we will come out of the grave uh, after the rapture bodily also. And then there is the power of the resurrection that's dealt with in the last uh, seven or eight verses of 1 Corinthians, and it's within that power of the resurrection that we find great victory in our Christian life. Uh, and we have victory, and we have our prayers answered, and we can walk with him, and we can labor for him because of the victory that he gives us, right? Not only in this life, but, O oh, death, where is thy sting? And so we even have victory over the grave. Aren't you glad for the resurrection tonight? We're coming up on Easter, uh, Resurrection Sunday, and we'll be remembering, remembering that. But Paul had another focus uh, when he wrote this book, and, and that is he was greatly concerned for many of the folks who had gone backwards in their Christian life, and they were actually living in sin. Matter of fact, the corruption was so bad in Corinth that its name became synonymous with its moral depravity. And uh, to Corinthianize would be to grossly uh, live in immorality, as we find in chapter 5. Uh, they went back to drunkenness and idol worship. And so Paul is dealing with all of that. But he gets to the end, and as Paul does so often, he wants to encourage the people. I mean, when you, if you would sit down in one setting and read this epistle, I mean, it's kind of like the sewer pipe of the New Testament. I mean, he deals with so many rotten sins in this book. But when you get to the end of it, you could tell he had such a pastor's heart because he wanted to encourage the people in the work of the Lord. And he said some great things in this verse. And I want us to look at them, at those words very cautiously and clearly tonight. The text is found in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, I want us to read that together. I want you to read it out loud with me as we commit this verse to our learning tonight. And I trust that as God has placed it on my heart, that he would certainly speak to your heart 
about it. And there's something about reading the Bible that is so critical. So I'd like for you to lift your voice. And uh, I don't care if you would lift your preacher voice, all right? It's okay. But I want us to read this verse together. You follow along with me reading out loud as I do. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Heavenly Father, help us with this verse tonight. It's a wonderful verse of encouragement. I pray as we look at this verse, and especially the theme of it, is about the, your work. And Lord, you've called us out of darkness and you've called us to your work. Help us to learn tonight about it. And help us to realize that you want to use all of us in your work. No one is without an exception. You have gifted us. You have placed within us wonderful abilities by your grace, and we can use these gifts and talents and abilities for your glory in the body of Christ as he even speaks to in chapters 12 and 13. And we pray, Lord, that we would walk away from this verse tonight understanding it in light of our own life. And perhaps, Lord, at the end of this message, there would be an opportunity for us to commit ourselves to the commands of this verse and follow its directives. For they are as sure and as needful today as they were in the first century when Paul penned this letter by way of the Holy Spirit. So may we open our minds and hearts today as we look at a wonderful passage of scripture that will encourage us, and yet, Lord, it has some teeth in it that can correct us, as we heard Pastor even speak of this morning. So, Lord, we leave the results of this message in your hand. It is your word. It will accomplish that in which you are going to send it into these people's hearts. May they listen as if it's the last opportunity that they will ever hear a Bible message. And may I preach in like manner. And we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. Look at that little phrase, the work of the Lord. And that's what I want to speak on tonight. Now notice, first of all, by way of introduction, it is not our work. It is the work of the Lord. It doesn't belong to us. It's his work. You know, sometimes if we're not careful, we can get very possessive of even what we do in a local church to serve. When God wants us to remember that he gifts us and he gives us talents and abilities for his glory, not for ours, not for an attaboy or a feather in a cap, but we serve humbly. We serve undeservably. We do not deserve to even sit in this building tonight and hear a message from God's word. 
So you and I have an obligation to remember this is not our work. It's not, it's not Pastor Floyd's work. It's the work of the Lord. And when I stay focused on that, that phrase itself has often really encouraged me. One author said this about this little phrase that I have titled the message this evening about the work of the Lord. He said this, the work of the Lord is simple obedience to his holy word. Every believer in Christ is a workman of God, end quote. Now, I like that. And I, I believe that. I, I, I uphold that quote. I, I wouldn't give it to you if, I, if it, wasn't in my, it wasn't in my heart to do so. So it's about obeying God's holy word. And he emphasized that every believer is a workman of God. If you are a true born-again believer, you are a workman for God. If you're a member of this local assembly, you are part of the body of Christ and you are part of the work of the Lord here. It's really a wonderful privilege. I think sometimes we lose sight of that because we get comfortable in our service. And sometimes the Lord wants to push us out of our box about our service. Sometimes the Lord wants us to change our service or to begin doing something different in the body of Christ. He has a will and a purpose and a mind for us, and we are to follow it. I think that my simple proposition to you tonight would be this concerning the work of the Lord. It is meted out by those believers who faithfully serve the Lord and refuse to give up, knowing their labor for him will face them again at the Bema seat. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Paul tells this same church in his second epistle to them. So the true believer is to really end his or her Christian life the way they started their Christian life. Do you remember when you first got saved? How excited you were about it? Do you remember how you begin to even think in your mind, God has saved me for a purpose. I wonder what he wants me to do. And you begin to figure it all out. You begin to grow in grace and your pastor is probably helping you. Or perhaps you were in a discipleship class and you begin to see how important it was for you to obey the word of God and be faithful, be a faithful church member, be a faithful Bible reader, be a faithful obeyer, become baptized. And I'm sure you remember those early days well, the writer of Hebrews, and I'm going to give this verse to you later in the, in the message. The writer of Hebrews mentions that how we began should be kept in our hearts and minds because that's the way we should end, faithful to him. Now, tonight, what I would like for you to do is to consider three observations that will help us finish well when it comes to the work of the Lord. And these three elements need to be a part of your life. Two of them are quite um, simple to see, easy to see, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on them. But the third one, I really want us to take and look at it very carefully. 
Here's the first one. It's found in the very first word of this text, therefore. And it's about how they were hearing preaching. They heard preaching. This word, therefore, is a throwback word. And it's thrown back all the way to chapter 1, verse 1. And I rehearsed some of those chapters with you in my opening statement. And these people heard preaching. Did you know that Paul stayed at Ephesus for three years? The second longest place that he stayed, according to Acts chapter 18, was his visit to Corinth on his second missionary journey. Chapter 18 of the book of Acts tells us that he stayed there one year and six months. Now that was a long time to hear Paul preach as he would go to the synagogue and hold meetings, as he would preach the gospel. People began to get saved and people began to leave their sinful lifestyle. You got to remember Corinth is located on an isthmus and that little isthmus was only four miles wide. And so if you were a sailor and was coming from the northwest on the Adriatic Sea, instead of going all the way around the huge peninsula of Greece, they would set up rails and small ships, they would pull across that isthmus to get to the Mediterranean Sea or vice versa. If you, were, if you were coming from the Mediterranean Sea and it's a small enough ship, they would pull it all the way across. Corinth was a trade city. Corinth was filled full of traders and sailors, people who traveled the world and people who had broad experience in sin. And Corinth became known for their sin. And, and the reason God says in Acts chapter 18 to send Paul there is because it was a great city, the New Testament says, and a great city in need. You know, God still looks at cities and he sees them great and in need. And he looks at Lafayette, and it is a needy city. And he has set Berean Baptist Church as a beacon in this town. And how wonderful it is for you to be a part of this church in the work of the Lord. And that's what we're talking about here tonight. The work of the Lord. So privileged. So it's important for you to hear preaching. May I encourage you every time that you can Please be faithful to hear your pastor preach. It encourages him when he prays for you and he prays for the Lord to lead him in uh, sermon preparation and sermon series and he sees you in your place. It's a great encouragement to him. I said to him on the platform when I stepped up here, I said, this is a great Sunday night crowd. And he agreed with me. So I commend you for being here. And I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir a little bit uh, tonight, but as you grow, you will grow from the result, one way from the result of his preaching. And as you do, God will open up your eyesight. God will teach you. 
God will, as, as, as he so rightly said, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Hearing preaching was important. These people had heard Paul preach for a year and a half and now <clears throat> he had heard about the relapse of their Christian life and he's writing a letter of correction. The second epistle was a, was a letter of praise because they had repented and godly sorrow and the fruits of repentance were, those fruits were seen in their lives and, and Paul commended them. So preaching is vitally important. Uh, don't have time to deal with it tonight, but four times in this book alone, Paul talks about his preaching. It's a, it's a sermon series within itself. It's the foolishness of it that God uses. And so preaching becomes extremely important in any local assembly. And none more important than right here, Berean, in this town that needs the light that you have. I want you to see with me, secondly, the people addressed in this passage of Scripture. Notice what Paul called them. He didn't address them, hey, you wicked, backsliding, wicked people. No, he loved them. One of the things about the love of a pastor is that he will love you when you don't love him. He's still going to love you. That is his responsibility. Loving the flock, leading the flock, feeding the flock, teaching the flock, touching the flock. It's all a part of it. Notice what he said and what he called these people. My beloved brethren. And the word beloved comes from the Greek word that we get our, or the, the Greek word would be agape. We say that quite often. Uh, it, is, it is a unique style of love and a definition of love. And here it is used uh, by the Apostle Paul as he talked about how he loved these brethren. Now, these were people who had fallen into some gross immorality, who had backslidden and gotten away from the Lord, but yet he wanted to reach them. So how did he do that? He did that by showing, I know you're struggling. I know that temptation has been great. I know that false teachers have been in this town. I know that you have been drawn away by the devil. I, Paul was saying all of that when he said to them, my beloved brethren, these people were saved people who got what I say and call turned sideways with the Lord. And that's why we need preaching from God's word. That's going to help you from getting sideways with the Lord. But the third thing that I want you to see and where I want to spend the balance of my time here tonight in verse 58 is that the policies that he mentions, they're one word policies, but it's all about the work of the Lord. And that's be ye steadfast in the work of the Lord. It's not wrong for us to add that to every one of these directives. Be ye steadfast in the work of the Lord. Be unmovable in the work of the Lord. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And these become benchmarks for us. They become directives when it comes to the work of the Lord. Just think about it this way. 
Nowhere else does he use this triplet, this trilogy of words, nowhere else does he use them this way with these Greek words. And let me tell you something. The words that he used in this passage about these three directives are incredible words in the, in the language. I mean, really strong words. And I wanted to develop them in your mind's eye by God's grace tonight. Let's start with the word steadfast. It's quite unique. Hesomai is the word. And the reason I give it to you is because it's only used by Paul one other time in the New Testament. It's, it's a powerful illustration. You see, this word steadfast is a military term. And it means to sit or to be completely settled. Now, I spent five and a half years in the army. And I know what it is to be steadfast. I know what it is to hold your position. Uh, I know what it is in practice and in drill to be captured by the enemy. And that I was to be steadfast even in my capture. I was to be settled in. I was to be able to give them my name, rank, and serial number, and that is all. And I did. And I aggravated aggravated, uh, the enemy, which was another company who was there to overtake us in the woods in a two-week drill. And it wasn't the easiest thing they ever did in my life. You're out in bivouac. You're not near any body of water. We'd been there about a week. You get 350 men with no water for a week, and their bodies stink. It's horrible. And so my friend and I were delivering a message for a one-star general, and we drove right up into the enemy territory, and they captured us. And they put black bags over our head so we wouldn't know where they took us, and they took us to interrogation facility where they interrogated us. And they did everything they could to get us to talk. They separated us. Pat Goodrich was my friend. They took our shirts off and they spread us eagle on the ground and they took grape jelly and spread it all over our chest and the ants would come. They had captured a South Georgia rattlesnake and tied it up in a limb and dangled it about three foot from that limb in front of your face. And I'm telling you, it crossed my mind to vomit up everything I knew about my unit. And then we got separated again and interrogated. And at the end of it, at the end of it, our captain of our unit in the debriefing had me stand and say, Arrowwood was two captures this bivouac and of the two captures, he stayed true to his commitment. All I gave them was Sergeant Richard Wayne Arrowwood, 256-869605. But Pat Goodrich told them everything. 
He didn't remain steadfast. You see, as a soldier, we can't abandon our post. As a soldier, we have to be settled in. You will be challenged in your Christian life in so many different ways. How will you fare in the challenge? Oh, listen. If you love preaching and if you love the word of God and you have a desire to obey the word of God, I'm telling you right now, you will fare well in your Christian life. And you will find out that you can be much stronger than what you thought you could be. You see, this word steadfast is so important. Paul uses this exact word one other place. And it's interesting. Matter of fact, let me show it to you. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now we know that Paul in chapter 7 is dealing with celibacy, fidelity, marriage, virginity. He's dealing with all of it. And here I want you to see how he uses this word. This word is so important that he only uses this word one other time in the New Testament. And this is where. Look at verse 37. Nevertheless, he that, now watch it carefully, standeth steadfast in his heart. Now he's talking about fathers here. He's talking about fathers. Remember, he's to be settled in. Hold your ground. Steadfast in his heart, having no necessity. In other words, he, he does not have any other agenda except what's on his mind here. But hath power over his own will. He could let it go. He could, be un, he, he could just let it go and say, I'm not going to be steadfast about this. Now watch it carefully. And hath so decreed in his heart. Now, that's the second time the word heart is mentioned in this passage of Scripture. In other words, he has to be steadfast in his heart. He has to make his mind up. I'm settled in on this. I, I, am going to, I am going to hold on to this. I am not going to let this go. That he will keep his virgin, the father, who will be determined not to let someone molest his daughter or daughters, is a man, notice the last two words, doeth well. He does well. So here it is. Now watch this. Here it is in the midst of 1 Corinthians with all of our knowledge that we just scooped out briefly tonight. Here it is him speaking, giving an illustration about a father who would guard the virginity of his own daughters. And he has to be steadfast. He has to, has to make his mind up. He has to be settled in about it. Now, here's the application. That is strong language, folks. If I interviewed every father here and said, are you going to do all you can to guard the virginity of your daughter? You would say, absolutely. Something about that kind of sin really aggravates us. It gets our dander up. So here is the application. Are you going to be more determined to be steadfast in your position of being a good father to guard your daughter's virginity, but you're not going to 
Be steadfast in the work of the Lord. You ought to be steadfast in both. You ought to determine this word is so powerful that being steadfast is necessary in order for us to end the way we began. To be steadfast is so important because we have a future. What are we going to be doing in the work of the Lord tomorrow? I mentioned that the writer of Hebrews deals with this. Let me read it to you. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence or our assurance or our calling steadfast, there's the word, different word, steadfast unto the end. So we should want to end the way we began And the way in which we do that is that we're to be steadfast. And then the Bible declares to us that this is necessary if we're going to end right. Just if it's necessary if a soldier is going to end right. Or a father protecting the virginity of of his daughters ends right. Another word found in the New Testament about being steadfast is also in the book of Hebrews. And it's a very well-known verse. You know it well. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and, you tell me, steadfast. Another reminder, different Greek word, but another reminder of being settled in, holding your ground, not leaving your post. Anyone can quit. Anyone can pout. Anyone can get their feelings hurt. Anyone can walk away. But it takes real character and great determination that that believers, true believers, will be steadfast in the work of the Lord by not abandoning their post, but by being faithful to it. There's one more time in the New Testament that we find this word steadfast. A different word, but it helps us. Who better could write about being steadfast better than the Apostle Peter? Boy, did he make a mess of his life. I mean, he was always inserting his foot in his wide open mouth. At one time, he denied the Lord. Around that same fire, he lied about even knowing him. And then he cursed. He denied and lied and cursed And 50 days later, he was preaching at Pentecost. You know why that encourages me? I'm not preaching that we should deny the Lord and curse. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is when he went out, and here's what the Bible says, he wept bitterly over his sin. He heard that rooster cackle, and it reminded him of the words of our Savior. And that's why God used Peter. He was quick to see his sin. That's why God used David in the Old Testament. He was quick to see his sin. And we have two epistles in the New Testament and several chapters in the book of Psalms that talks about forgiveness and none even more than Psalm 51 and how God forgave David with his gross immorality and murder. Steadfast. Peter writes about it. Let me read it to you. Matter of fact... 
I wish I had time to, to explain a little bit more. But you know it well. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, is a, a, as a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. We usually stop at that verse. But verse 9 has our key word. Whom resists steadfast. You better resist the devil steadfast. And doesn't James teach us if we resist him, will we not be drawn nigh unto God? How important it is. Whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same affections are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So here we have a directive from the Holy Spirit of God about the policies being followed. And the first one was be steadfast, faithful by being steadfast. Here's the second one. Let's look at it again in our text in verse 58. We need to be fixed by being unmovable. That is accomplished quite easily. Unmovable is a negative participle, which reveals our commitment to the work of the Lord. It's very kin to steadfastness, but it deals with our commitment. And it deals with the idea of when, we're tr- when, when someone tries to move us, we're going to say no. We're not going to move. It, it's not this what this church needed. They were, they were being moved. Moved by false teachers. Moved by the devil. Moved by sin. So Paul is using words that they can identify with. And it takes commitment to be unmovable. The thought is that we should refuse to be moved from the work because God called us out of light or out of darkness into light. And do you know what he says about our calling in Romans 11? He says that our calling is without repentance. God's not going to change his mind about your salvation. He saved you for eternity. He's not going to change your mind. He's not going to change his mind about that. What he wants to change is our sinful thought life that led us astray. And he wants us to get right with him so that he can use us. How wonderful it is to know that God can take a person like Paul, Saul of Tarsus, we, uh, of Troas, or Tarsus that we saw a little bit in the sermon today about. And now here we find him being unmovable and steadfast. Here's the third word, and that is be fervent by always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Let me deal with that closing thought. There are three things here I want us to see. Number one is there is a command. Always abounding. To excel, the word abounding, super abound. To excel, to go above and beyond the call of duty is connected to the military term of steadfast. And many times we see men who are true heroes in war 
go beyond the call of duty and they are awarded a bronze star or a purple heart or some recognition for their bravery and their unwillingness to capitulate and run from the problem. So this matter of abounding is a command. In other words, we shouldn't say, well, I'm not going to abound today. We don't, we don't cherry pick what we like about these words. Not only is it a command, but it's also a comfort. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. It's a comfort to know that as you labor in the work here, God keeps the notebooks. And those books will be open in that day. And our works and what we've done for him and the motive that we used will be judged. Not to get us into heaven, but to reward us for our steadfastness. For being fervent and faithful and fixed in the battle. Comfort for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. And then there's a cause that we see all of this is in the Lord. The cause is not your cause. We come right back to the work of the Lord. It's not our work. It's his cause. We labor for the cause of Christ. And there's, there's a greater need in the overall cause of Christ than it is for our personal feelings or our emotions or something that might disturb us that really in the judgment seat will not amount to anything. And so we have to learn and grow beyond that. And that's why Paul says to this church, to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we are without excuse tonight when verses unfold before us like this. We can't escape it. We can't say that the work of the Lord doesn't mean very much to me. If the work of the Lord doesn't mean very much to you, I would wonder, are you a true believer? Because true believers are concerned about the work of the Lord. Not their work, but the work of the Lord. By his grace, you do not have to have a PhD to be in the work of the Lord. Aren't you glad for that? Matter of fact, when you look at the disciples, none of them had any education And Peter said, silver and gold, have I none? But do you know what the people said about Peter and John and the disciples? That they had been with Jesus. And that makes a difference. We have to be with him. And when we are, by his grace, we can be steadfast. By God giving us strength, we can stay on our post. We can be unmovable. By God's strength and grace, by his word, we can be abounding in the work of the Lord. So my encouragement to you tonight is if you're discouraged, then I encourage you to press on, my dear friend. 
Do not get weary in well-doing, for ye shall reap if you faint not, the Bible says. Keep moving forward. Learn to be steadfast when you're tempted to walk away. Say, I cannot do that. My future and the future of my children, my grandchildren, everybody is watching me at the church and my family is so important that I'm going to teach them that being steadfast and unmovable and abounding in the work of the Lord is more important than anything that I do. The money I make, the home I provide, and I'm not against any of those things. But we cannot go after the world and leave the work of the Lord to the pastor and the deacons and a few committed Christians. We all need to be a part of the work of the Lord. And if the work of the Lord means nothing to you, and, and, and hearing this was a bore, then I would encourage you to examine your heart. If you do not have a heart for the work of the Lord, then you don't know the Lord of the work. And you have to humble yourself and trust Christ. If you're here tonight and you don't know Christ, you can get saved and become part of the work of the Lord. And have a genuineness in your heart about being steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. And then if you're here tonight and maybe perhaps you've been upset about some trite thing that really at the judgment seat will not make any difference in the world. And you're going to let something so small move you away from the work of the Lord, the people of the Lord, the Bible, the preaching of the word. If you let that move you in, in the wrong direction, then I, I pray that you would be like Peter of old. Weep bitterly about your selfishness. And say, Lord, this is too small. Life is too short. The kingdom is at stake. And on top of all that, every word I say will be judged in that day and the books will be open. And every motive that I had in doing anything for the Lord will be judged. And a fire will be lit. And the wood, hay, and stubble will be burned and only the gold and silver and precious stones will last. So we have the work of the Lord to consider. I encourage you, press on. I encourage you to keep your heart right. Boy, that means you're going to guard your heart so much. You, you're, going to be, you're going to be determined to be steadfast to the point that you would fight for your own daughter's virginity or you would fight at your post to death. Strong language, but that's what God expects of you and me when we look at this word, steadfast. God help us to be unmovable. God by his grace, may he allow us to abound in the work of the Lord. Would you stand with me, please? Pastor's going to come and close the service as he sees fit. May the Lord add his blessings to his word.